<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. Yeah! I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> When shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When thy lockdown hath be done, when the COVID's course has run. The wrath of Omicron doth spread despair, lingering through Toronto city air. Theaters closing, thy heart's tempest tossed, the fragrant smell of popcorn lost. Hark! The sky turns dark and glum, something wicked this way comes. Tis just Sinclair, fair and foul, with furring brow and sinister scowl. Hark! Tis time, dear sisters, to record our listeners fevered, house-ridden, and bored. Gather round, sisters, stand ground and hover. Reveal thy film, us three must cover. Double, 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 double toil and, and trouble. trouble. Fire, Fire burn, and cauldron trouble. Round about the cauldron go, what film to cover we must know. A hair of Merrill to help discover, an eye and thumb of Affleck brother. A cancelled piece of golden globe, a fuzz from Mariah's sparkles robe. In the cauldron boiling bake, a dash of sequel in one remake. Bubble, bubble, oh steaming charmed pot, in with Cap Tooth and Kate Hudson's top knot. Reveal to us, oh mystical stew, what Disgust just released them brand new. Tis time, tis time. Hush, the cauldron doth say. We must discuss the Scottish play. Come now, sisters, to thy podcast, Mikes. A film so full of despair and death. Gather round, film lovers, to discuss Macbeth. Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we either feature a new release and delve into our weekend entertainment, focus in on a performer's career, or buy an extra large popcorn and do a double feature. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And once again, a reminder that if you would like to gain access to our previous season's episode or monthly special episode that's exclusive for you, please head over to patreon.com slash me. And become a patron. And this week's episode is dedicated to Felicia. Felicia is a Talk Movie to Me patron from right here in Toronto, and she loves all things film noir. Thank you for all your support, Felicia, and for being our patron of the week. And if you somehow didn't guess from that opening, this week's film is The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by the Cohen brother. Yes, that's right, singular. This time, Joel Cohen directs without his brother Ethan. Leading the cast are Denzel Washington as Macbeth and Frances McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Don't you feel like she should be a dame? I just want to say dame, Mm. Frances McDormand. (laughs) (laughs) 
And in supporting roles, we have Brendan Gleeson, Corey Hawkins, Harry Melling, and Catherine Hunter. Macbeth is one of the most popular and often produced of Shakespeare's plays, but if you aren't familiar with the story, it revolves around Macbeth, a Scottish lord whom, after leading a particularly successful battle against Norway, is given a prophecy by three witches that says he shall become king of Scotland. And then, being emboldened and galvanized by his wife, Lady Macbeth, he succumbs to his ambition and murders King Duncan, claiming the crown for himself, and thus does begin his tragedy. The tragedy of Macbeth asks the question, what role do fate and free will play in the tug of war between ambition and morality? And how far can one man stretch before being torn apart? Helen, mm -hmm. first impression. So I was completely engrossed from the moment that this film started. We have the black screen with the white letters that say when, and it's the witches' voices uh, reciting those first lines. And their Catherine Hunter's voice is so creepy it like gets inside of your bones mm -hmm. like that's how it mm -hmm. felt to me and i was so 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 into it yeah i have to echo that i immediately paused i i actually had to pause the film and quickly look up on imdb who that voice was because i was like what even is this it's actually a visceral response that you have yeah. to her voice. It's like it's one. It's like you're standing behind beside a a bass <laughs> at a concert. Like it vibrates. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. I was like, oh my god, totally, totally, mm -hmm. totally with you, Sinclair. Sinclair. Yes. Okay. So I saw this in the theaters right before we closed down again here in Toronto because of fuck. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so jealous. So mm -hmm. I just squeezed this one in. Yeah. And I wanted to see this in theaters because Macbeth is my favorite Shakespearean play. Mm. And I also love the Coen brothers. And after I saw this trailer, I had goosebumps. And I just felt like I needed to sit in a dark theater and watch this on a really cold winter's day. I just needed that in my life. Yes. <laughs> so wow. right at the beginning of the play, there's a really wonderful, eerie scene with the three witches. And... I loved how instead of showing them right off the bat, we could just hear their whispers and then there is a shot of these three ravens that are circling, which I attributed yeah. to being symbolic of the three sisters circling the mm -hmm. landscape, kind of like they're, you know, puppet masters preying on their next victim. And you see mm -hmm. the captain walking through the sand and it transitions into the aftermath of the battle. How the dialogue and the visuals tie in right away, I was immediately sucked into this and I had goosebumps watching this. I just felt really excited. And and you really felt like you were in safe hands. Like that very first shot with the raven circling, you instinctively feel like you're looking up at them. And then it just suddenly flips your expectation and mm -hmm. your sense of reality when you realize that it's actually an, a shot from above looking down. Yeah. And I thought that that was br a brilliant way to open this film because that represents so much of what the story is about as well. Mm. And already we're like, ah, this is just like telling a story through the visual that is really doing the text justice. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess we can get into storytelling. One fun little thing is the the curse of Macbeth, the Mac mm -hmm. Macbeth right. curse. So yeah. there is a history here with this play of this play being a curse play. And it has to do with 
just a series of unfortunate events that happened to people involved with putting this play on. So from the very first performance in 1606, there was a ton of mishaps that happened. Actors were dying, bones were breaking, there were mysterious deaths. Productions of this have always just been riddled with difficulties. And while writing Macbeth, Shakespeare included a lot of elements in the plot line that would have been interesting to King James. He basically wrote this play for King James. And one of the elements that really fascinated King James was the supernatural. So Mm. he ended up using what witches believed were real spells in in the play and the witches weren't happy about this so there was a coven of witches that were not pleased with this and it's said that they they set a curse upon the play because Shakespeare used real spells so this curse led to this superstition that speaking the name Macbeth inside a theater other than what's called for in the actual script if you say Macbeth and it's not related to that, it would cause disaster. Mm-hmm. So this has started um, people saying the Scottish play or the Scottish mm-hmm. king or the Scottish lady. And they used to do these cleansing rituals if you happen to say Macbeth. And people would do things like they would speak turn around three times they would spit over their left shoulder they would have to recite lines from other Shakespearean plays and there was this whole superstition and cleansing process uh that would happen if you were the unfortunate soul who who uttered the name Macbeth right I didn't know that that was the history of the curse about the the spells that's so cool that is really cool yeah don't piss off a witch (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was in high school in the drama department, people in that group, would, you know, would talk about that and joke about it. Someone said Macbeth one time. And that night, the hot water boiler ex- or hot water heater exploded and flooded the theater. Mm, hey. Wow. <laughs> it's the curse. It's, it's the, the curse. curse. I'm trying to think. There was a production of Macbeth when I was in university. And everybody talked about the Macbeth curse then, mm-hmm. too. It is just one of those things that is completely known. Mm-hmm. And theater geeks love to know it. Yeah. And, um, but I don't, I don't remember if anything happened or not. But, yeah. Maybe just not cool to you, Edison. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. in it. So, yeah, I guess that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in terms of storytelling, the story of Macbeth is just completely solid in my eyes. We all know this mm. story. It's one of the great Shakespearean tragedies. And it stands a test of time, like most Shakespeare does. I mean, this is the reason why it's performed so much. It's been adapted so many times. And I think for filmmakers, it's a question of how can we take a classic text and make this version different from other yes. adaptations of the play? Because the themes are amazing in Macbeth. We see Shakespeare influencing so many movies and television shows like sons of anarchy Mm -hmm. is inspired by hamlet house of cards has macbeth elements and even you know recently with succession there's a ton of king lear in there these stories of heavily influenced popular culture so the challenge i think is for a filmmaker to say how can i take these stories and make my adaptation unique Mm-hmm. And I think because film is a visual medium and because you have such a wide range of options, you know, you can do almost anything in film. It does give a creative filmmaker or a very specifically stylistic filmmaker like 
Joel Cohen, as an example, or Baz Luhrmann with Romeo and Juliet. Right. Uh, yeah. Kind of a, a, a full palette to work with to really, because the story is so strong, you can just kind of do whatever to elevate the story or to at least transfer it to that medium. And I think that this film, like, that's the challenge. How do you transfer this story to film and have it somehow make sense and not just be, you know, a recording of the play, for example? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, one of the changes that was made for this adaptation was the ages of Macbeth mm -hmm. and Lady Macbeth. So they are not typically in their 60s. Uh, and Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington are. And... Joel Cohen and Francis McDormand talk about how that informed the character choices in different ways mm -hmm. and how there was actually one line that they changed from the original text to this play. And it's Ooh, when Macbeth, it? yeah, it's when Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are talking and she's, you know, convincing him to kill Duncan. Macbeth says to Lady Macbeth, bring forth men, children only for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males, saying you should only have male children because you have such masculine energy. And because of their ages, she couldn't get pregnant. She's right. you know, postmenopausal. So he changed it from should compose to uh, should have composed. So they changed uh. the tense. And, and yeah, they talk about how if Macbeth knows he's not going to produce any heirs, his mm -hmm. desire to hang on to the the crown is that much stronger. Well, I think it does actually change the story fundamentally to have mm. aged them in that way. Mm. And I think it does in two in two ways. One, exactly that. Like, if he knows he doesn't have an heir, then that it reveals something even darker about mm -hmm. his ambition, I think, mm. because mm -hmm. it's so strictly selfish yeah um and self-motivated because it's not even for the sense of legacy you know you have to think this is 11th century scotland basically and these people are they live in a world of royalty and heirs and handing down the crown it's so ingrained in them that to know that he'd never have one and yet still go for it in such a manner is is different than mm -hmm. in the play when he could have an heir yet and right. i think also in the play Macbeth is obsessed with Lady Macbeth and wants to do this as much for his own ambition as to because he knows that that's what she desires. Mm. And in this film, they feel weary with one another, like mm. like an older couple who've been through the ringer together. Mm. And it's not as much like um, he's blinded by his like love and obsession for her. And so it yeah, changes it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it really does. Yeah, and I think the idea of ambitious characters, the the rise of power and ambition are generally associated with with younger characters. Mm -hmm. So this is really interesting because Frances McDormand and Denzel Washington are in their 60s. Mm -hmm. And generally, these characters are played by younger actors. So it's this idea of, well, time is running out. We need to get our comeuppance now. You know, mm -hmm. like there isn't an age that you just stop wanting power and wanting to right. gain power. Yeah. So when I was watching this, I actually followed along with my Shakespeare book. I know. And I have oh, mine cool. too. It's my actual copy from university. It's so yeah, funny. Mine, I still have my notes in there too. Same. I, I still have mine from theater school and I still have 
sticky tabs in it for like monologues that I was working on and stuff. Yeah. Oh my God, amazing. Um, and I, so I actually followed along for a lot of this and I was surprised at how much was omitted and flipped around. So mm. there was quite a bit of dialogue uh, that was was not included. And then Joel Cohen did play around with timeline a little bit in terms of like he would take one, you know, monologue and put it in front of a different scene or a different act, mm. which I imagine was to sort of like hurry along the story. And I liked that. I think that this could have dragged and it didn't. It works for me for exactly that reason. You have to maintain some pace. And especially mm-hmm. with a film that's so austere looking like this one and kind of dreamlike, you need some kind of, you do need plot to move along. And mm-hmm. I do, maybe there were times where it kind of jumped too quickly. And if you weren't familiar with the story or if you struggled with, you know, Shakespearean English, then you could be quite quickly lost. Um, But I think fundamentally, if you struggle with Shakespearean English, this is not a film you're going to enjoy anyway. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, let's just be real. Yeah. In this case, I love that they kept the language and I love Mm -hmm. that they kept it classic. I, I don't generally like when they they modernize it necessarily because I love I love the Shakespearean language and I and especially Mm. with this play so I thought that what they cut out and how they blended things together worked really well I think they gave the character of Ross he took on a lot of lines so he became more of a prominent character which I really loved because it was a great performance and the character was really interesting and it really Mm -hmm. gave that character a platform for us to have a relationship with that I never got before when watching other versions or reading the play. I had never Mm -hmm. had that relationship with the character of Ross. Yeah. So I was, uh, he was a standout to me for sure. Alex Hassel who played Ross and uh, in following along there are, I noticed moments of like, you know, where Malcolm is speaking and then half of his dialogue is given to Ross. Mm -hmm. And then there's the scene with the three murderers. And there's the third murderer who is not identified as to who it is, but uh, is somebody that has, you know, knowledge of the castle and seems to be in the inner circle of Mm -hmm. Macbeth's inner circle. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. in this film, they gave that part to Ross. And then he also has action at the end of the film that's not written in the play, uh, Mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. Um, But I I loved how that character was brought to life in this film. It was very much a like little finger roll. And yeah, yeah very totally, little finger. totally. You totally, I love that. The It's the like master manipulator intrigue kind of not playing any one side, just kind of for themselves. And it's yeah. such a brilliant character, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like yeah. that as well. In terms of like Joel Cohen wanting to do Macbeth, I thought it was like interesting at this point in in Mm. their career to want to do an adaptation of Macbeth. I read that Frances McDormand has played Lady Macbeth before. Mm. Yeah, on stage. So there was kind of this like creative union of want to direct a play of Macbeth and Joel Cohen being like, no, and then them kind of Mm. coming together and deciding to do the film. But Mm -hmm. I think that it makes a lot of sense because... Macbeth has a lot of similar themes to other Coen brother films. Yeah. I actually think this is a great fit for Joel Cohen. Like Macbeth explores a lot of ideas that I feel are especially present in like No Country for Old Men. Like mm-hmm. he was very drawn to 
Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men because it explores the idea of fate and the philosophy of choice and chance Mm -hmm. and self-fulfilling prophecy. So Mm -hmm. when you look at their filmography for Joel Cohen to want to kind of step out on his own and take this on makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and he says that if it wasn't for his brother wanting to take a break from filmmaking, this wouldn't have gotten made because Mm. Ethan Cohen is not interested in doing a Shakespeare movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you're when you're watching it, there are very few characters that are like Cohen Brothers Z, you know, yeah. but there's there's a little bit. Little bit. Like there's yeah. a little a little bit where you're like, oh, okay, I can see that. What you saw yeah. the, like the dude in Banquo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Duncan? No, not more more like <laughs> the witch. I feel like mm. the witch could could pop up in like a twisted corner of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Yes, yeah. Well, like this idea of like Odyssey and mysticism and all exactly. of that. Exactly. I love what they did with the witches. I oh, I my think that God. we all are familiar with the witches in this play. So what they did here was so cool. It was just yeah. so cool. Just the whispers and then the ravens and to have, you know, one actress playing these three parts. And yeah. only seeing one witch and then, you know, you see the, the shadow of the other two or mm-hmm. their reflection in the water. Mm-hmm. It's just so cool. I did look up the symbolism of the raven, obviously. <laughs> yeah. The raven represents loss and ill omen. Mm-hmm. prophecy and insight and there's psychopomps which are creatures and spirits who escort newly deceased souls from earth to the afterlife so mm-hmm. ravens connect the material world with the world of the spirits and that's what this feels like you feel the connection between something really ancient and mystical and the witches, but like also something very like real and and rooted in in the earth and the beach and the sand. And it was just so cool. I watched a video with the filmmakers talking about the making of this film and how, I mean, it was all, we can get into this more in technical, but it was all uh, shot on a soundstage. And so everything is sets, nothing is outside. They wanted it to feel like a dream. Like you're yeah. not really supposed to know where we are. And it really does read that way. Like it's it's feels like a nightmare mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. feels like you're not really grounded ever. And like you can't totally pinpoint where you are. It's the blend between theater and film. It's like this movie exists mm-hmm. like right in the middle of those two worlds. And you really feel it. I need to shout out this one one scene, the double, double toil and trouble, like how they did mm. this. With mm. the cauldron almost being like a pool at yes. Macbeth's feet that he is immersed in, and he's yeah. looking up, and there, you know, the three witches are looking down at him, dropping the ingredients in, and he's just a mixture in in this mm. pot. It was mm-hmm. just so innovative. Well, we all chose our favorite lines of text from the play and how it was delivered, and kind of what it means for the story. Uh, in this film so why don't we talk about that a little bit Um, what was your favorite line Helen I mean I have a few but one that sticks out to me is from Lady Macbeth and she says come to my woman's breasts and take my milk for gall you murdering ministers 
<laughs> and in general, there's so much um, reference to breasts and her the her feminine features that she doesn't necessarily identify with because she's so driven and has all these um, attributes that are generally given to males. And Frances McDormand has quite a masculine energy mm-hmm. at times. And so I I loved watching her go through that process in in this movie and um and I just find the alliteration of murdering ministers to be it just really like hits me for some reason. I don't know. I I love it's like it. Super phonetically pleasing, yeah. Yeah, murdering ministers murdering ministers <laughs> i just want to like say it over and over again yeah um so that's one of my faves uh what about you sinclair okay this it was hard because i have a lot of favorites in this but mm. one that stood out to me like specifically watching this version mm. of it was when lady Macduff is having a conversation with her son and the henchmen are coming to kill her and her family mm. and the maid comes in and says basically hey you better run bitch like (laughs) you better run Uh and she says whither should I fly I have done no harm but I remember now I'm in this earthly world where to do harm is often laudable to do good sometimes accounted dangerous folly why then alas do I put up that womanly defense to say I have done no harm yeah. And it's so sad. It's just so yeah. sad because it's like, why would I be fearful? Because I, I can't be punished because I just do good and I do mm-hmm. no wrong. Then she realizes this is so it's so cynical too, Edison. You probably mm-hmm. hate this, but she realizes <laughs> that she is on Earth and on Earth there are bad people and bad people move up in the world. And mm-hmm. being good can sometimes make you a fool and being mm-hmm. naive to the world can make you a fool. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like it's it's so sad. And then they throw her son off. the. <laughs> I know. It's awful. <laughs> oh, it's I know. Bad. Yeah. And. I don't know. It's she corrects herself for even using the idea that she's good as an excuse to not be afraid yeah. because no matter how good she is, that won't protect her from the bad. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That one stuck out to me too. Yeah. So for me, obviously the whole play is great lines. Yes, but I like there was one that caught me um, when Macbeth says, "If chance will have me king, why chance may crown me without my stir? Come what come may." And first of all, it was Denzel's specific delivery on that line, mm. which was just so naturalistic with no bravado at all. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it just landed. But what I really loved about this is this is before he kills Duncan. And it's like it's engaging with this conversation of fate. You know, yeah. he has been told by the witches already prophesized to be king. And then he's seen the first part of their prophecy come true, which is him being made of Cordor. Mm -hmm. There's a question here of what is actually driving him to do his action? Is Mm -hmm. it fate? Has fate pushed him in this direction by telling him his future? And is he just going along with fate, the inevitability of it? Or is it, is that lazy? Is that him saying, "Mm, my ambition and my is not you know my own and my morality is held in the hands of three witches and it's you know i don't have to feel guilt about this and that line as 
kind of sums it all up for me. And it was so cool that he delivered it in such a nonchalant manner that I, it, I don't know, it was almost throwaway, but yet mm-hmm. super powerful. Yeah. And I just love that. Well, I mean, I think this is a great time to get into performances then. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Especially Denzel yes. Washington, who is the lead. He's Macbeth. Yeah, you know what? I thought that he was a really interesting choice for Macbeth. I wasn't fully sold on him the first time I watched this. So I watched this in the mm. theater and I I watched it again now because it's on Apple TV. But as much as I enjoy watching Denzel Washington and I enjoyed watching it, him in this, I wasn't sold on him as Macbeth per se because, okay, so his cadence and his presence had such an authority over the language with this, but he wasn't selling me on Macbeth's internal anguish. Mm. So the thing with Denzel Washington is he just, he brings a a cool to everything he does. He brings this effortless cool. And Macbeth is a character that is like very influenced by others. He's very conflicted. Mm. He's guilt ridden. He's Mm -hmm. experiencing a ton of shame. He takes a backseat to his wife. And Denzel Washington is an actor that just commands the room. He owns the room. He's always in control, even when he's not in control. And it's very rare that you see him sweat. And I would have liked to see him sweat a bit in this and be anxious and internally, internally act the lines. Like he's, you know, he has lines, oh, full of scorpions in my mind, dear wife. Like his guilt is torturing him. He says, Mm -hmm. sleep no more. Macbeth doth murder sleep. He doesn't sleep. Macbeth is awake, haunted by his sins. And Denzel Mm -hmm. Washington just has this like natural chill about him. I would have liked to see him in more anguish and then it could move to the end where he's Mm. apathetic to his killing by the end. I'm actually glad that you said that because I felt pretty underwhelmed by his performance Mm -hmm. and I was like, but I've been, you know, it's been getting rave reviews and I'm like, am I missing something? But it to me, yeah, there's a casualness with which he speaks the words that I didn't find very engaging. Mm-hmm. When I took Shakespeare class in theater school, we had a really great Shakespeare teacher and he, um, and I've actually been revisiting my notes from that class because I was helping a friend with a Shakespeare monologue. And so much about how to make sense of the language is about how you emphasize the words and is about mm-hmm. where you take the pauses. And if you're treating Shakespeare like it's modern language, then it, I think, loses a lot of meaning in certain spots. And that's kind of what I felt was happening mm-hmm. with the way he was delivering the lines. And yeah, I also didn't, it, it felt low energy to me, the mm-hmm. performance. Yeah, I think Up the casualness a is a good way of saying it. There was a casualness. And yeah. he has such a great cadence and flow. And the way he's saying the lines is, is it has a soothing quality to listen to, but it's not right. showing the internal struggle. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I'm realizing that I, I agree with you both, but I would not, I would have actually come onto this with a rave review of that performance. Mm. Well, because he's so amazing to watch because he's Denzel Washington. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't take my eyes off him. And I, like, I just, he's so charismatic. I mean, yes, because he's a movie star and he has been forever, but like, and still so handsome and just like, he feels, you know, the way that this was shot too is so good for close-ups and it's just like so 
he is in complete command of his instrument. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I guess that's true. It was lacking. He definitely has big explosive moments. Yes. There was definitely a couple of, you know, King Kong and gut shit on me moments in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I could get behind for sure. He does have a great training day moment near the end. Full Denzel Washington comes out when he's chastising his subordinates and he says go prick thy face and overread thy fear thou lily livered boy and he had like so yes. many yes. moments and i felt like that was that was training day right there yes <laughs> exactly. yeah shall we talk about francis mm-hmm. yes i i was really really uh taken with her performance in this mm-hmm. um and i thought she looked so beautiful in black and white Mm-hmm. Like really, oh, God, really yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I got the sense that like she understood that woman and her motivations, and that felt quite that felt clear to me the whole way through. Mm-hmm. She just has this ability to. <sighs> she's a fucking titan. Like she's just so <laughs> mighty. And because she carries herself with such a force, uh, you believe that she has control over Macbeth, uh, even when Macbeth is Denzel Washington. So I I did feel like those scenes when they were together, I do feel like she had the upper hand, right? That she had control of it. And she does, obviously, in the text. But I thought that that comes through in her performance. She's fantastic in this. And I love when she played into the madness too. There's times like when she's out by the pool and it could, and when she like wails, that is a big choice. Yeah. Mm. And it's really big for Frances McDormand, who often is much more of a sort of an internal performer. Except when um, she howls on stage at the Oscars. <laughs> except oh, when yeah. she howls. On- okay, fair. <laughs> yeah, totally true. Um, yeah. But it's completely believable and actually like, viscerally effective Mm, mm -hmm. yeah i really liked her as lady macbeth i thought this was such Mm -hmm. a great role for her you know lady macbeth is a woman who so desperately wants to be free of her womanly restraints and march march to the beat of her own drum and wants power but is confined to these expectations of what a a lady of the house is supposed to be and Mm -hmm. Frances mcdormand is a a wild wolf She, you know, doesn't wear makeup or brush her hair if she doesn't feel like it. She has authority. She can be contained, but she can also be really unraveled and believably so. Remember that beautiful Vogue cover she did and she's Uh out in the desert and it says Frances McDormand, Hollywood's iconoclast because she is a bit of an outlier and... Mm. She was just, she had all these different facets of her personality come through in, in Lady Macbeth, and she had such um, elegance and command of the language as well. Yes, yes. Definite command of the language for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think they all did, to be fair. Now, I know that you, you feel like it was rolled off Denzel's tongue even too casually, but like they all really mastered the the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I, I already touched a little bit on Alex Hassel, who played Ross, but his performance and the way that he delivered the language made complete sense to me. 
And I'm not somebody that when I watch Shakespeare, I understand it all. Like I need to, that's part of why I was following along in my book was to like see the words and like try to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. But anytime that he was um, in the scenes and speaking, I understood everything that he said because his behavior was telling me what it meant. Mm -hmm. And it was his performance was just so clear to me and I looked up his history and he's done a lot of Shakespeare he comes yeah. from that background and it's clear yeah, yeah I think that's also why that he got more lines in the film because yeah. he is obviously a trained Shakespearean actor mm-hmm. who knows exactly what he's saying and he's doing and there are a lot of shots of him that are so close on his face and you're just reading his eyes and he knows how to translate that dialogue to what he's thinking internally he actually helped translate the language to us like very well Mm -hmm. in this film Mm -hmm. for me the standout performance of the entire thing is Catherine Hunter as the witches (laughs) oh my god that I the commitment, just the voice alone is completely uh-huh. insane. Let alone uh-huh. the physicality, the way that she literally like flapped like a crow, but not in a cartoonish way. Like it was terrifying and real. Yeah, like, oh, like flappy I, hands that she was. Doing. I cannot. I that performance knocked me sideways. Like yeah. I'm completely obsessed. Yeah. 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 Well, and her, yeah, her contortionism, the and the way that she does like embody a bird like that scene where the her three witches turn around and then it's the hunched up like a crow like shoulder bones and also when she's the old man yeah like the and (laughs) close-ups on her like it's she's fucking incredible yeah yeah she had three distinct voices for each witch Mm -hmm. like you could hear three distinct characters coming Mm -hmm. out of her I just thought that this was such a unique and innovative performance that completely fit with the vision of this film. Mm-hmm. Like yep. this creative union of her and this film was just perfect. She was the star of this for sure. It she it had mime influence and contortion and animalistic influences. It was just so cool. And there was a point when she turned some of the dialogue almost into like a seafaring chant. Yes. (laughs) And it just felt so ancient and old and mystical. It was just the coolest. She existed outside of reality and outside of time. It was surreal and abstract. And that is what this iteration of this film was. And she embodied it perfectly. Yeah. Flawlessly. Yeah. Um, okay. So c- touching onto that, let's jump into technical mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because there's plenty to discuss there. And I know we're, this is going to be a long episode, yeah. you know, featuring, but there's a lot to talk about. I, I mean, know. it's Shakespeare people. It's Macbeth, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, know, we have hundreds of years of history to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the standouts for me, technically, was the production design. So there's a, a quote from one of the making of films where someone says, it doesn't take place in any physical space. It takes place in the minds of the characters and the psychological reality. And I think that that informed so much of this film. And it really informed the production design, designed by Stephen Deschamps. It is totally fascinating and intentional it's super dramatic um but like surreal 
it's like a dream the scale of these sets is like colossal mm -hmm. these rooms are often entirely devoid of furnishings save mm -hmm. for maybe a single chair or throne and yeah this was all shot on giant sound stages with this kind of blank austere architecture super super geometric and just like towering mm -hmm. and fascinating and a lot of the backdrop was 2d like mm. like old school sets yeah. and painted like they painted the shadows into the set design as well but it's such a stylistic choice that there will definitely be people who are like but i want to see the the castle i want to see the grandeur mm -hmm. you know i want to see well then the... they can watch the macbeth with michael fassbender yeah that's what i was gonna say <laughs> totally. that totally. one uses vast landscapes and the, you know the scottish mm -hmm. scenery that's the one you want to yeah. see <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that's that is not this film no and that yeah. worked for me this is my much more minimalist yeah, um, but yeah. yeah yeah so one thing that I love technically was the transitions between scenes yeah. they were mm -hmm. flawless and breathtaking just to name a few that were so incredible that I need to highlight so there's a beautiful shot of Lady Macbeth with the burning yeah. letter that she lets float out the window and it's a flame and it's drifting into the dark starry sky and then it transitions into a shot of Duncan standing under the same starry sky right. and it is so gorgeous and so flawless. There's Denzel uh, uh, walking towards the door to murder Duncan and you can see the door has a handle shaped like a dagger and he's mm -hmm. slowly walking down this hall to commit this crime like he's being summoned and he just enters into pitch darkness and then the next shot it it opens on Duncan's face. You know, sometimes there'll be a shot of the moon that turns into a spotlight for an actor to walk mm. walk on to give a monologue. Like, it's just so incredible. One of those um, transitions, Sinclair, the one with the, like, spotlight mm -hmm. of light, it was amazing to me. And I was, in general, just completely floored by the cinematography, the, light, the lighting and the angles and stuff in this film. It was the cinematography was stunning. It was all shot. Everything was this beautiful black and white and gray. The really interesting angles. And that, again, I mentioned it earlier with the particular framing. It's called the Academy Frame. Mm. And it's so brilliant for these close-ups. But it also, again, reinforces that feeling of sort of abstraction or displacement. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very much not reality. It's, kind of, it's similar yeah. to The Lighthouse, right? The way this is lit, the shadows are so stark and striking and sharp. Like mm -hmm. the contrast is so high. And ugh, I just thought it was like really incredible. And the cinematographer is a man named Bruno Delvinel. And he's been nominated for five Oscars with no win so far. Mm. Um, so sh absolutely, this is going to get another nomination. Yeah. And yeah. I could see it winning, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, the the cinematography and the visual style of this, which I I loved, is like very hev heavily influenced by German expressionism films. Yeah, those films are black and white. There's lots of shadows, and the visual style is supposed to make you feel feelings of like sanity, betrayal, angst, death. <laughs> darkness mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the goal of german expressionism is 
to convey inner feelings of darkness. So this type of black and white is very different from a memory piece like Belfast or right. this yeah, black yeah, yeah. and white. It doesn't feel nostalgic. <laughs> no, and, and there isn't this like black and white realism like we saw in like, come on, come on. It's right. very absurd and sharp and discombobulating. Well, and same with the costuming. Most of that was devoid of color. And they specifically wanted to work with really interesting textures because that's what's going to create shadow since you don't have, you know, the luxury of color. And Mm -hmm. and so you really do see it when you look at the costuming that there is like, you know, there's the heavy fabric with rich texture and same with the hair, like looking at the the braids and the intricate hair design, especially on Lady Macbeth, is specifically designed to look to have more depth to it. it well, when shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Shall we get to the last word for Macbeth? Yes. The last word for Macbeth is <laughs> death. Yeah. Um. Despair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my, the last word for me, I thought that this film was technically a masterpiece. I thought it was mm-hmm. flawless. I thought it was a really creative way to tell this really well-known story in a new, kind of sh- show it in a new light and kind of find a new way to portray it on film. It's wholly original. Um, and I thought it was really impressive. The performances were great. And I, I I loved this film. I thought it was great. Yeah. Sinclair? Honestly, I'll just echo all of that. I feel like I definitely sang this film's praises. I really loved this adaptation. But at the end of the day, this film is just freaking cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it gave me goosebumps, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, for me, the standout was Catherine Hunter getting to know who she is as a performer uh, and and watching that performance in this is so, so captivating. And, you know, there's points in there where I was like, oh, she's like Gollum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was very Gollum-y. Um, yeah. Very Gollum-y. Uh, so that on top of everything else the two of you have, have spoken about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All hail Macbeth. <laughs> All hail. This week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. And in keeping with the Shakespeare of it all, uh, the theme for this episode is All the World's a Stage. Famous quote from Willie's play, As You Like It. Good old Willie. Good <laughs> <laughs> Willie. <laughs> this is our week in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Helen, what'd you pick? So I decided to revisit a film from 2008 called Hamlet 2. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that uh, Steve Coogan? By, yes, directed right. by Andrew Fleming, starring Steve Coogan. I saw this when it came out, and I remember being really entertained by it. I have not seen it in, you know, 14, 15 years. Uh, and I thought it fit the theme pretty well. So here is the description, courtesy of IMDb. A failed actor turned worse high school drama teacher rallies his Tucson, Arizona students as he conceives and stages a politically incorrect musical sequel 
to Shakespeare's Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yes, he is this failed actor and also failed drama teacher who decides to stage this original play, Hamlet 2. And most people's reaction is, how are you going to do a sequel to Hamlet? Everybody dies. Right. Um, so <laughs> his, yes. So his idea is to create a time machine. So that Hamlet can go back in time and convince his mother not to drink the poison and convince Ophelia not to kill herself Uh and, you know, forgive his father. And there are a lot of really great comedic moments in this. Uh, I'm going to read the little opening bit of this film. To act is to live. To act is to breathe the poet's breath. It is to embody the dreams of man. To live as an actor is to live a dream. But dreams are ephemeral and sometimes impossible. So we must ask, where do dreams go to die? Mm. Hollywood. Hollywood. (laughs) Well, actually, what comes up is welcome to Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) But this is interspersed with clips of Steve Coogan's character's uh, acting career. So there's an infomercial for a juicer. Oh, my God. Amazing. And then there's him doing a a bit part on... Z- is it Xena? Xena Warrior Xena Princess. Xena Warrior Princess. Yes. On Xena Warrior Princess. And then there's a clip of him doing a commercial for herpes medication. So it's it's really hilarious, the juxtaposition of his horrible acting career with this like poetic idea of what acting is. Yeah, I mean, this movie is really funny. There's actually quite a bit in it that hasn't aged very well, which mm. I wasn't expecting. Um, but there's a few jokes, like running jokes in this movie that make me cringe there's a whole running gag of like i was raped in the face and it because like this like oh. haha raped in the face raped in the face and i'm like that's not that's not really funny oh rape no. jokes i just <laughs> it's, it's no, really no thank you and there's a character in it who's you know this <laughs> one of the few drama students that actually like worships him uh is this white teenage girl who's pretty racist and she keeps making these racist jokes to the Latinx students that have joined the drama club. And it, it gets resolved, but it still feels icky. So, yeah, this film starts off strong. And then for me, it, it falls a little bit flat towards the end. I was expecting uh, a little bit more from it revisiting this film because I do remember enjoying it back in the day. Um, but there is a very funny musical number called Rock Me Sexy Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is <laughs> worth watching and listening to because Jesus is also a part of Hamlet too, as there yeah. is a time machine. So, you know, he needs to be involved. Yeah, as well. bring him along for um, the ride. Exactly. I've never heard of this film ever. This in was my a life. hit. This was, you don't watch comedies it was. though. You don't right, watch comedies. Oh. This was a comedic yeah, hit. Yeah. So yes, I think there's a lot that's enjoyable about this movie but i would actually suggest if people are looking for this type of a character go watch summer heights high and just uh watch chris lily play mr g who's a very similar type of drama teacher because it's it does this better (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay cool yeah so that was that was my uh pick this week hamlet 2 from 2008 (laughs) Mm. nice uh edison sure 
Um, all right. So my film is a campy gay classic that I'm ashamed to say I had not seen up until this point. The film is 1996's The Birdcage, mm. ah. directed by Mike Nichols and based off of the Jean Poiret play La Cage aux Folles from 1973, which was first adapted for the silver screen in 1978 by director Edward Molinaro. So Helen, you covered this film actually way back in season three, maybe? Or yeah, I can't remember. <laughs> We can't remember, so you probably can't either. <laughs> For some reason, I had it in my mind still that you were going to do Magic Mike. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yes, he's going to talk I, about Magic Mike. I like the first That's game. true. <laughs> I could have done Magic Mike. <laughs> but this one just really does fit the theme kind of in, of all the world's a stage in like two mm-hmm. ways. So the birdcage tells a story of long-term gay couple Armand, that's Robin Williams, and Albert, that's Nathan Lane. So Armand owns the birdcage, which is this super popular drag club on Miami Beach, where Albert is the main attraction, in drag, of course, as Starina. And they've been together forever, and they, you know, bicker like every other old couple. But one day Armand's 20-year-old son, Val, comes home, and announces that he's going to marry his girlfriend, Barbara, and that her parents are coming to Miami Beach to meet his family. Mm -hmm. Just the one small issue, which is that her parents are conservative Republicans. In fact, her father is a total right-wing senator who goes on national TV shows as a member of the National Morality Group or whatever. And so, you know, he's always ranting about how homosexuality and abortion are tearing apart the fabric of their nation. So to avoid the catastrophe of Barbara's parents learning the truth about their soon-to-be in-laws, she tells them that Armand is a cultural attaché to Greece and is very much in a happy marriage with Val's mother. And Val, being the spineless, selfish little prick that he is, (laughs) convinces his dad Armand to butch up and play straight and go along with the lie. And his other dad Albert, well, he's just too gay, so best if he just leaves for a couple of days while they're visiting. To be honest, I just wasn't sure going into this I, what I was going to think. It's from mm-hmm. 1996. We know that they're all there's all kinds of problematic shit from back then, right? Every film is, really. Mm-hmm. And specifically with this content, I just didn't know how I was going to react to it. But I also know that it's a classic and is really beloved by a lot of people it, in the LGBTQ community as well. And so I was like, okay, let's be open to it. And I do feel very conflicted about it mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I think it is fun. It is a really like well performed. The performances are amazing. Robin yeah. Williams and Nathan Lane are yeah. just joys. Yeah. Like they're just so joyful to watch. They have really mm-hmm. great chemistry mm-hmm. and their characters and their relationship is wonderful. Nathan Lane uh, is fucking hilarious in this. He's so over the top and melodramatic. It's yeah. completely ludicrous. But somehow he plays this like cartoonish character and it's real. Know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The thing is that Val, Val just didn't get his comeuppance. Like mm. he's actually the worst he's the villain it's not gene hackman as this fucking right-wing senator who's the villain of the film Mm -hmm. gene hackman is like that character we know who that character is right that character is a dick and you're not supposed to give a fuck about that character because they're an idiot but that character isn't betraying you because you already know who they are but val is 
the worst kind of little bastard. <laughs> I was genuinely furious at that. In yeah. fact, I didn't even want to say the. I don't even think I introduced the actor's name because I can't even. Yeah. I just hated that character so much that he I'm would. I'm looking it up right now because you haven't said who it is. Okay. Oh yeah, that guy. He's in an episode of Sex in the City, and he's he sucks in that too. <laughs> <laughs> perfect so (laughs) that's the thing like uh it it really because the thing is they all just keep dancing or like val is like oh but you know i I, my girlfriend's family i don't want them to know that you're a bunch of fags he doesn't say that but that's what he's saying yeah yeah and also like making albert like leave you know, mm. he's just too gay. Now, of course, then Nathan Lane comes in as Starina during their family dinner, you oh, know, in right. drag. Yes. And kind of saves the day because he totally charms Gene Hackman's, like, you know, right-wing senator, of course. So you actually do have this really cool dynamic. And it's really fun. But it's not until the, the like, secret gets revealed when Christine Baranski, who is his actual mother, who has never been there for 20 years, like, arrives. And finally, Val is like, yeah, this is my mother talking about Albert, but it's too little too late for me. Mm-hmm. And I would have been like, fuck you, kid. Some wounds just don't, don't heal. Mm-hmm. And like, ugh, I would have kicked him out of my house ages ago and told them all to fuck off. So it did leave me mad. Just like, um, what's that play about the kid that everybody's obsessed Dear with? Dear Evan Hansen. Oh. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck, fuck you, fuck Evan Hansen. Play. I yeah, hate that so- play. <laughs> for the same reason right because yeah. evan hansen gets away with it so val and evan hansen are on the same page fuck you both oh, no i'm over yeah. it <laughs> but anyway so this does fit the theme of all the world's a stage kind of like i said in two ways right so one because obviously starina is a drag performer so earns a career as being on stage and two because this whole thing is a sort of a pantomime like it's they're staging this like play almost of a fake relationship so yeah so but the movie was still kind of fun but it is other fun. Than that, it's a fun movie it, but i hear you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway what was yours sinclair <laughs> <laughs> okay i watched a weird little film called true stories from 1986 it's directed by david byrne who is a lead singer of wow. 80s new wave band the yes. talking heads uh-huh. a little psycho killer do you know he also does a really cool cover of i want to dance with somebody really i would love to hear that that would be interesting yeah (laughs) because he's really interesting and so it's this movie (laughs) yeah this film is very strange it's like part art house part slice of life part music video basically it has david byrne playing this character that's supposed to be our narrator and he's taking us on this adventure through this small town of virgil texas which is a fictional town and this town is gearing up for its birthday it's turning 150 and they are having this celebration of specialness that's what it's called the celebration of specialness and (laughs) it's going to feature a parade and a talent show with all the quirky members of this town it sounds like a christopher guest film it's christopher Mm. guest ish it's almost like it's slice of life but it's very exaggerated it's very idiosyncratic and Mm. Mm. I don't know. It's a it's absurd, but it's rooted in realness and in a real setting. So I guess it's satirical in a way, but it's not too far sat- satirical. Okay. I, 
don't know how, how well I'm describing this, but there's these scenes of these people living their odd little lives. And this is mixed in with David Byrne's commentary on American culture and consumerism. And hmm. then that's mashed together with a lot of talking head songs, which mm-hmm. are a big part of this film. And they were made for this film. So oh, wow, that's cool. It's weird. It definitely feels like an art project. And part of it feels like it's like a Nuit Blanche art installation. <laughs> In a way. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's it's almost like it's highlighting the absurdness of everyday life and how the monotony of our lives can still be very fascinating if you lean into it mm. and you showcase it. And like no matter what job you have or what town you live in, you still we still have um, these different qualities about us that make us interesting to be observed. I'm not a huge Talking Heads fan. I really enjoy them, but I you know, I haven't watched things like stop making sense or american utopia which are talking heads concert mm-hmm. movies but mm. i get the the sense that this film holds a special place in the hearts of talking head fans like it wasn't a big hit at first that makes sense yeah i feel like there are little things in there that are for the fans and if you are a big follower of david byrne and and his art i feel like you'll get it a little bit more it's it's very strange. It's an interesting watch. And I guess he was inspired by Small Town America, but also the Weekly World News, which is like a tabloid magazine. And he was like very inspired. Yeah, with like aliens. Well, and see, stuff. that's more National oh, Enquirer. God. So he's like made a very spe- a distinct difference between National Enquirer and the Weekly World News. Like the Weekly World News okay. was more um, human interest stories. So he just took a lot of these different stories and made up these characters that were like living these stories and I guess, yeah, turned it into a movie. But it it got me thinking (laughs) that, I don't know, like the world just has an endless supply of stories and characters. Like everyone's lives, no matter how mundane they are, could be turned into a movie. Like we all have arcs, we all have supporting casts, we have triumphs, we have failures. And oh god, guys, you're my supporting cast. I know we <laughs> are just your supporting cast. That's for damn no, sure. No, no, Even I'm in lead, my Edison, story, I'm I'm the, I'm the supporting cast to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, at the end of the film, they all come together, and this town has this talent show, and they all get up and do these like really weird things. Like there's two auctioneers <laughs> that have this like auctioneer off, and they're talking really fast what? to each other and. It's it's yeah it's very strange but there's a lot of great songs in this and this actually became a Talking Heads album and there's oh, a song cool. in this called Radiohead which I didn't know actually inspired the band Radiohead's name because oh, they wow. really Shit. love David Byrne and the Talking Heads so oh, I thought huh. that was pretty That's cool really and now cool. I feel like I'm gonna go down a David Byrne rabbit hole. Mm. I, to be honest, I'm surprised that you're not already kind of I a, know, a like, David I, Byrne a- expert. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I've never like immersed myself in them. I've listened to the Talking Heads, but I've never delved deep into it. So I feel like mm-hmm. this is like my gateway into the Talking Heads. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. 
All right, guys, there's only one way to end this episode, the tragedy of Macbeth and all the world's a stage episode. And it's uh, by playing a game I made up that is called Shakespeare. Shakespeare Jeopardy? Shakespeare Jeopardy. Okay, that's fun. So the way this is going to work is I will read you an answer of a film that is a modern adaptation of a Shakespeare play. I will tell yeah. you what the play is. You need to tell me what the movie is. Okay. Mm-hmm. And your answer or your question must be, what is blank? Yes. Mm. Do not say what is. You do not get the point. Okay. okay. Very strict rules. I'm gonna I'm gonna be on a roll, just like Amy. I think <laughs> like 38 consecutive wins or something now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, are we going back and forth? Yes. Okay. So I have questions for each of you, um, and if we do end up having a tie, I, I do have a tiebreaker. Mm, okay. If the uh, contestant gets it wrong, the other contestant does have the opportunity to steal. Okay. As per usual. Okay, Sinclair, first question goes to you. Mm-hmm. First answer goes to mm-hmm. you. Okay. This 1991 cult classic starring two young heartthrobs is loosely based off of Henry IV. That's, um, uh, sorry, what is my own private idol? Very good. Very good. Okay, uh, Edison, your first question. Originally brought to the screen in 1961, this story refuses to die, unlike the two leads in Romeo and Juliet. What is Julius Caesar? No. Why would Julius Caesar be? <laughs> Julius Caesar is a Shakespeare play, first of all. Oh, wait, what am I have to say? The name of the what movie? What is Julius yeah. Caesar is your answer? Oh, so, fuck. So no. this, it's okay. You can have another try. So this No, he movie. does not get another try. Just wait, read it, read no. it, say it again. Say it again. Okay. I'm yeah, gonna, you okay. have to say it one more time. One more time. Okay. Don't wait, no, 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 Edison, show your hands. Edison, no, Edison cheats. Oh, he cheats. oh for God's sake, come on. No. <laughs> he does Don't okay. act Stop offended. It. Don't you act offended. We know you <laughs> cheat. All right. Originally brought to the screen in 1961, this story refuses to die, unlike the two leads in Romeo and Juliet. I don't know. Well, that's all right. Uh, contestant number one, would you like to steal? <laughs> Uh, I think I'm going to try to steal. Um, What is West Side Story? Very good. Oh, for Christ's sake. Yep, that doesn't die, that movie. (laughs) Yeah, it won't die. That that movie will not die. That's true. It will not die. It just keeps coming back. All right. Oh, Romeo and Juliet. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) All right. So that's two points for Miss Sinclair. Miss Sinclair, here's your second question. This 2006 comedy has a child star turned teen star playing both male and female roles. It is an adaptation of The Twelfth Night. Uh, what is She's the Man? Very good. Amanda Bynes, baby. I know my Amanda, Amanda Bynes. Bynes movies. Oh, my oh. God. I didn't think you were, I was. Okay, I, I need to clarify that, that I actually really loved Amanda Bynes. <laughs> That's amazing. So did I. This, how did I not know this about you? She was very funny. Yeah. The yeah, Amanda oh, show was incredible. I know. 
and what I like about you. I, oh, what I like about I know. you. Yeah. It's sad. It's really sad. I really liked her. I And I yeah, like sh- watched She's yeah. the Man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I loved She's the Man. So funny. Edison. Edison. Edison Hands. Edison Hands. He, he's no, just I'm looking, looking up, up Amanda Bynes. No, no, no. Bynes. He's looking up modern adaptations of Shakespeare. Hands. Edison Hands. <laughs> Hands. All right. Here we go. Edison, your second question. It's 1999 and we're going to the prom in this adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew. What is She's all that. Fuck. What is Okay, I'm stealing. That's your answer. That's I gave you that's, the easiest That's the one. easiest one. I know. Okay, I'm stealing. Okay, yeah, what is 10 things I hate about you? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I actually gave you the easiest one, Edison, because I was like, I feel like Sinclair's going to do better at this game. I'll give Edison the easiest one. Oh, um, this is embarrassing. <laughs> okay, Sinclair, are you ready? Here's your third question. Not that it really matters because you've won, but okay. Unless you want to do all or nothing. No, the, I never gamble. Breaker. I never gamble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You wouldn't think that the tragedy of Hamlet would be material right for a children's movie, and yet it's the source material for this beloved 1994 film. Mm-hmm. The, the Lion King. King. What is the Lion King? What is Lion King. Yeah. Yes. I got yeah. it. Okay. I got it. Okay. Edison. I got it first. Edison, let's see if you can get one question right. <laughs> I did. I just did. No. Well, that wasn't your question. Okay. <laughs> this one's so easy. <laughs> Like the Lion King? The 10 things I hate about you is the easiest, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, the tagline for this 2001 film is Everything Comes Full Circle, and it is a modern-day retelling of Othello. Mm. What is O? Nice Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay, so now I'm going to give you the tiebreaker just for fun, mm-hmm. even though Sinclair won by a landslide. Uh this actress has starred in three film adaptations of Shakespeare plays. Name the actress and name the films. Mm. Uh, three adaptations of Shakespeare plays. Name the actress and name the film. Like modern adaptations or just adaptations? Uh, modern. Um, Julia Stiles? Julia Stiles is correct. What are the three films? She was in O. Uh, she, she was in O. In she was in 10, ten Things I Hate, I hate About You. you. Mm-hmm. Um, I got two out of three. <laughs> oh, my God. Stop piggybacking on my success, Edison. Okay. <laughs> and, and she was in The Born Identity. No, wrong. That well, is yes, a modern interpretation. Not- it is. It's a modern interpretation of Richard II. Oh, my God. The, the other one is the same title as the play. Oh, uh, is she in Hamlet? Midnight of the Garden of Good and Evil. She's in Hamlet. Hamlet. She's Ophelia. Ophelia. Oh. Ophelia. She's Ophelia. In the Ethan Hawke one. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And those all came out around the same time, which is weird. It was like she was the modern Shakespearean actress for yeah. a few years. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, you you won Shakespeare-y. Um, You can come back next week for... Uh, yeah, the next the next episode. See how much money you win, Sinclair. Thank you. 
Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been another episode of Talk Movie to Me. If you would like to get in touch with us, our email is talkmovietome at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at talkmovietome. Tweet at us at TMTM Podcast. Uh, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is talkmovietomepodcast.com. And you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash talkmovietome. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. Hark. <laughs> Hark. Hark. <laughs>